Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Paddock in the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello everyone. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Daryl Mitchell, the former Worcestershire County captain, who is now the Chief Operating Officer at the Professional Cricketers Association. Thank you for joining me on the on the show, Daryl. No, thanks for having me. Well, to begin with, I wanted to ask you what the PCA has been doing in the build-up to the new season. It, it must be a busy time for you. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I've clocked, clocked up some miles over the last month or so. We, we, we visit every county. Um, so all, all, all 18 counties from, from Southampton and Brighton right up to Durham. Um, a little presentation for, for, all, for all the guys in the dressing rooms and just on what's going on in the, in the cricketing landscape at the moment and um, a few updates and try and answer any questions as sort of best we can, really. So, it's um, yeah, it's, it's been a busy time, but fortunately got those out of the way now. And then uh, we're on to the regional women's centres now. So we've done one out of the, one out of the eight centres so far with a couple more later this week. Yes, because talking off air, um, one of our previous guests, Patrick Foster, in episode 111, he did some work for you recently at the counties. Yeah, it's, obviously it's an amazing story, as I'm sure your your listeners would have heard uh, on the previous podcast. But yeah, he, he's um, um, obviously quite a sad story in a lot of ways as a, as a professional cricketer, but he worked quite closely with the, the trust to, to get his sort of life back on track. And now he's doing some great work for the PCA Yeah. Uh, Visiting every county and just giving a sort of um, talented story, really, to 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 the um, to the players and just a sort of a, a word of warning. Some of the, the pitfalls of of the professional game and obviously gambling in particular in his case. So yeah, he's doing some great education for us. So do some of the talks when you go out to sort of players and new players cover things like social media, addiction, alcohol, and those sort of things? Yeah, I mean the, the sort of the educational side of it sort of differs year on year because obviously you can't keep going over the same ground all the time so but all those all the topics that you'd imagine anything from sort of um, the addiction side of things and all the vices there um drive drive safety was was one one year in terms of the educational workshops we did 
um social media is actually we've had a social media and mental health workshop that's been delivered this year actually around all the all the counties and the regions um obviously it's a, the modern world now isn't it social media and um and that's sort of yeah that, that's something that all players and well all society really need, need to be aware of there so a lot of education around that and then we have sort of online tutorials as well around um standard sort of things sort of every year really sort of modules we call them sort of anti-corruption anti uh anti-doping uh and professional behaviors is a, is a new one this year which which, which covers social media guidelines and, and things like that within that i guess it must be very much appreciated by all the players yeah i think so yeah and obviously i mean there's no better sort of um education really about learning is, is learning from players themselves and some of the pitfalls like you mentioned patrick around 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 the gambling issues but probably ollie robinson's done a bit of work with us around the sort of social media things as well and, and being careful what you tweet and obviously his his life was sort of turned upside down what should have been the sort of greatest day of his career really so those sort of stories and, and hearing from from people's um people's sort of um experiences is is, is probably the best form of of education, particularly when it's sort of previous players who've been in been in the shoes of the guys they're sort of talking to. And as you said, uh, this is male and female now because they say the women's game is really growing. Yeah, absolutely exciting times. I think for for the game and particularly the women's game, but also also the PCA, we welcomed um, welcomed the new sort of domestic members, professionals in in that, and that's grown again. So we started off with seventeen England centrally contracted players. We gained another um, forty when the domestic sort of structure took off in the women's game and then um, that's been added to again I think we're up to a total of 68 current playing members now um, 17 with England and, and 51 domestic members well thank you for that let's go back to the beginnings of cricket for you how did it how did it all start um dad played um and and just village cricket um places like Dumbleton and Badsey for those who are sort of familiar with Worcestershire and, and Gloucestershire that sort of area um so yeah just followed followed him really like watching him play i think it's, there's pictures of me um in my cot about two days old i think with a mini cricket bat and things like that and always loved the game Mum said that i sort of when test matches used to be on the bbc i'd sit in front of the, the tv as a three-year-old even before i was at sort of school and things watching watching a day's cricket and just always always loved the game i loved all sports really football was a, a big passion of mine as well i loved watching the rugby and the, and the golf and, and horse racing and various other sports so yeah it was um but cricket cricket i guess was always the one and probably the one i was best at so did you play sort of county age groups for worcestershire yeah i went right through so I, at the time it started i think it's in the 10 now but at the time it started under 11 back uh back what's that now two decades ago or whatever more than that it's nearly three decades ago now um yeah, so that that I started under 11s um, and just went through went through every year in the in the in the system as it were. I think I was the second intake ever of Worcestershire's academy when I was about fourteen or fifteen. Um, and yeah, and just sort of step by step. Obviously, got a few second team games when I was on the academy, and then a university sort of scholarship contract they called it, and then then into a into a full contract off the back of that. Yeah, I was going to say you made your second eleven debut in July. 2002 and then uh, your first class debut in May 2005 against Loughborough University a game that Worcestershire lost yeah yeah it was a pretty uh, underwhelming debut to say the least I suppose in, in first class cricket um, yeah we uh, yeah we got beat I think we were played at Kidderminster actually I think it was at Kidderminster if I remember rightly and yeah 
I remember Tom Moody wasn't particularly pleased with the with the performance of uh, of the group. Yeah, and we got turned over by the students, unfortunately. So yeah, not a, not a, not a debut to remember, I guess. And then you made his county championship ge- debut in June against Somerset at the Recreation Ground at Bath. Yeah. Batting at number seven, you got four, but um, the team won by eight wickets. And there was a looking at the uh, the two sides. There was some quite stellar players playing. But the Somerset side had got. Andy Caddick, who got you out. Jaya Saria was playing. Graham Smith was captain Somerset. Um, and you had Graham Hick, Chaminda Vass, Gareth Batty, and Ben Smith was captain in Worcestershire. Yeah. Yeah, it was... It was. It can't be too many people who debuted like me. I actually came in as an international replacement. Um, I think it on, might have been a morning day three. Yeah, I think it was day three. So, yeah, so I, Bats got called up to England, actually. So... Uh, Obviously, an injury in the ODI squad or something, so he left the game halfway through. Um, and yeah, and I was down there as twelfth man and, and took over. So that's how I sort of made my my championship debut. I remember Bats was batting. Um, we all knew it was happening. He he was batting the night before, and he was certainly, as I say, this politely playing a few shots is probably the right expression, I guess. And uh, um, fortunately, he managed to managed to get get through to the end of the evening, so I was able to go out and bat at least the next day. Um, it's sort of a straight swap and um, hung around for a little bit. Unfortunately, the experienced Andrew Caddick got the better of me um, um, Yeah, for only four. But yeah, we went on to win the game. I think Ben Smith got a big hundred. Um, we bowled them out relatively cheaply in the second. Inning. I think both teams got a big first in the score. And then we bowled them out for about 150. I sort of remember Matt Mason and Nadine Malik sort of ran through. Um, yeah, Somerset side, both Smith and Jairus Ria failed in that, in that second innings and, and we knocked them off pretty pretty comfortably really I wasn't required second in and it must have been a, a big jump playing with such international players at the time yeah it was and I think I think the beauty I'd, I'd sort of done my apprenticeship a little bit though I'd been around the squad for so that's probably my third year on on this um scholarship contract thing so I'd been around the group for a long time obviously got to know like Hickey and Vikram was obviously my captain and and bats and, and a few of the others. So yeah, I knew all the guys relatively well on our side. But yeah, it was certainly a um I think that year we had our overseas players with Chris Gale and Shoah Bakhtar at one point as well. So I played with played with those two guys that year and sort of debut. But Shaminda Vass was a brilliant guy, spent a lot of time. We had two dressing rooms at Worcester then in in the second team dressing room chatting to the youngsters and things. So he was he was a good guy to be around and yeah, felt very much at home in the dressing room. It was a bit Bit daunting to come up against your Smith, Dryas, Rears, and Caddix and things like that, I suppose, on debut. But yeah, it was a really good experience, and to win was was obviously the most important thing. Well, you became a regular in two thousand and eight when you got over nine hundred runs, and then in two thousand and nine September, I have to mention this: you were bold tree go two hundred and ninety eight <laughs> in Somerset at Taunton, fifty four fours, only one six. Uh, what's it mm. like batting that long? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I suppose I've always sort of set my stall out to bat long. Obviously, it doesn't always work like that, does it? Um, I remember I got I got dropped relatively early. Keyswater dropped me behind uh, 20, 20 to 30 or some, something like that. Um, and uh, Taunton in them days was a brilliant place to bat if you could get in. And um, yeah, scored relatively well very quickly for me compared to any of my other previous innings. I think I got about 230 and not out overnight or something like that. Um, yeah, and just sort of carried on the next morning and fortunately tried to hit Triggs over his head and, and sort of chopped on, I think, I think it was from memory. Well, my research also revealed that it was Justin Langer's 
last ever first class match. All oh, right, I didn't know. I couldn't. I, didn't, I wouldn't have been able to yeah, tell you well. that to be honest. Yeah, I remember Jay. I was Jay. <laughs> I was playing. Yeah, yeah. I remember Jay. I was playing. Um, remember he told me we got to lunch on day two, and he told me that it's enough of me now, or something on the way off. A sort of tongue in cheek comment, but yeah, um, yeah. I got out not long after lunch. I think on, on day two. Well, the next year, two thousand and ten, you became the captain. You had been the vice captain. Was captaincy something that you had always aspired to? Um, yeah, I, don't, I think people generally saw leadership qualities in me as I was a kid. So I captained the Worcester age groups for a long time, spent a lot of time as captain in the, in the second team at Worcester. Um, I went over to Perth um, three winters on the trot and they, the club there, Midland Guildford, made me captain in the third year. Um, so it's something I'd done a fair amount of. I mean, if I'm truth, truth be told, I was sort of, it was a fledgling career at that point. I, I'd, I'd sort of only sort of, it was stop start for the sort of first three years I was at Worcester and I sort of made it my permanent sort of position in 2008, like you say. So I'd only had a, a couple of years under my belt, full time playing in the first team. So we had sort of a bit of a mass exodus really in the end of 2009. A lot of players moved on. Hickey, I think, retired in 2008 as well. So it was, yeah, there's, I guess, a lack of sort of experienced players in the team. and. Uh, Vic asked me to be vice captain and he decided he'd had enough to be a captain at Colwyn Bay back end of 2010. And I sort of stepped in as sort of interim to the end of the season at that point and then obviously made the, we'd had, we had quite a good run, won a few games and got promoted and um, that position became permanent off the back of that really. But um, yeah, it's something I'd always enjoyed, quite like being captain, quite uh, like the tactical tactical side of the game, I guess. And a great sort of mentor, really, and Vic Cram learned a lot of of him over the years as well as as a lead as a leader and as my captain. So, um, yeah, it wasn't something that daunted me too much, and just en- enjoyed the challenge of it. Really, you said in in that sort of conversation that you'd also captained Midland Guildford in Perth. What what was it like, an Englishman cap- captain in a load of Aussies? Uh, yeah, it was, I was the first ever overseas captain. I think so I've I'd been there two years previous and, and done done pretty well and um, the, the captain at the time stood down and they felt that I was the best option for that year really so they asked before I left at the end of year two whether, whether I'd come back and captain the team and obviously what a great experience so jumped at that opportunity to go back and, and captain the side and it was I guess the first real sort of taste of, of, of selection really a lot of the teams I captained before was very much sort of here's your team in junior cricket and things like that and even the second team was you were given the side to captain on the field, but this was sort of first sort of venture into dealing with things off the field, if you like, in terms of selection and that man management side of it and things like that, which was tricky because anybody who knows sort of grade cricket, particularly, I don't know necessarily around the rest of the country, but certainly in Perth, it's every player's ambition in that club is to try and get in the first team and, and, and play in the A grade side. And um, yeah, it was some interesting characters to manage, but I think I did it did it reasonably well and um, yeah, enjoyed enjoyed my time as captain, certainly. Well, you see test players play sort of grey cricket, don't you? I know Justin Langer, when I've been out there, was playing for Scarborough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think he played against Mike Hussey, Justin Langer, as you say. Um, uh, yeah, so yeah, they do. They do, They go back and play. A lot of the state guys as well. They had no first-class cricket that weekend. They nearly all play. So, um, yeah, it's, it is really good competition, particularly when there's... Uh, um, the sort of the state and the and the test players are available for selection. It's it's tough and it's um, yeah really enjoyable to play. Learned a lot over over the course of those three years certainly. 
Well, you led Worcestershire for six years. You gained promotion to Division One in 2014. And it didn't seem to affect your batting too much because you got a thousand runs in four of those years. Were, were you ever on the verge of getting into the England setup? Yeah, I, I think I must have been close a couple of occasions. I think we had, I guess, with everything, it's timing, isn't it? It seemed to be every time I was I was doing well, somebody else was doing doing equally as well <laughs> at the same time. I guess um, I thought certainly thought sort of fourteen and fifteen, I, I was playing really well and. Um, Lydie actually had a really good year I think in 14 so he went on the tour and, and started 15 um, Sam Robinson played in 2014 I think as well and I was I was in a bit of a purple patch so I was a bit disappointed not to get a crack but I guess it's it's hard to argue when others are doing well as well and it just it just wasn't my time unfortunately I think closest I probably came is in 2015 we're in Division 1 I just off the back of a double hundred um, I know I was talked about in selection because I spoke to to Gus Fraser, who was a selector at the time. And um, I think Lydie hadn't done particularly well in the Ashes series, but they stuck with him throughout the whole thing. And that sort of was the end of my opportunity, I think, really, in a lot of ways. 2017, I had a really good year as well. I'm not sure how close I would have been then. But uh, yeah, no, no regrets, really. I, I, I did the best I could, tried to score as many runs. And unfortunately, it uh, wasn't quite meant to be. Well, you returned to the ranks uh, at Worcestershire, I say in 2017 and in 2018, um, you won the T20 Blast final beating Sussex. Were you in there in the team for the final for your medium pace bowling? Yeah, pretty much. I think with the, it, at that point in time, so certainly yeah, 18, 17 and 18, I think well, no, it was 18, 19, we got there two years running, didn't we? Um, but yeah, I, I was very much... I was a crisis man, so I got I sort of started off in sort of at four or five if we lost early wickets. We didn't do that very often, and as soon as we got off to a reasonable start, I, I slotted back in it, sort of eight and nine behind the, some of the more bigger hitters. I suppose was the was a theory, yeah, and bowled bowled, bowled my medium pace um, cutters and things in the sort of middle overs. Really, I bowled a lot a lot, especially when Mo Mo was away with England. I was sort of I guess in some ways, like the second spinner, spin option, I suppose, when Mo, was, when Mo wasn't around. Then when Mo came back in, him and Dolly sort of shared the spin. I probably didn't bowl quite as many overs, but but sort of chipped in with two or three overs here and there when when required in those periods. And yeah, but it's sort of down the order. It must have been exciting, though, for a, a county, some, some would say unfashionable, the underdogs winning on the big stage. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, it's a, probably one of the, best days of my career actually in terms of the actual day itself I think interestingly I think it's, um, the, the quarterfinal was probably the most nervous I've ever been on a, on a cricket field in a lot of ways we, 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 we got to a lot of quarterfinals I think I might have lost six on the trot or something in terms of T20 quarterfinals over over obviously a long long period of time and but Gloucester at home was probably a game probably the first time we probably actually favourites in one of those games in those quarterfinals obviously um I think we won the North group. We were playing some really good stuff. Obviously, Gloucester sort of snuck through in fourth in the South. And uh, I guess the sort of expectation was that we'd go on to win that game, certainly within the group and, and from our supporters anyway. So, um, yeah, to get over the line, that one was uh, was a big game. And then finals day itself was almost, we're the first Worcestershire team to get there. We hadn't been to finals day at that point. So to get to finals day was was almost an achievement itself. And Mo was brilliant as captain in that, in that on that day, well throughout throughout that series, really throughout that competition, just took takes the pressure off other people and just allowed players to go out and express themselves and really enjoy the day. And then fortunately, 
um, it came off. Yeah, two two relatively comfortable wins actually in in a, in a lot of ways. Ben Cox had a, probably the day of his life, and I think he's man of the match in both innings, or certainly top scorer for us in in, in both games. So um, yeah, I mean we won with two or three overs to spare in the final, didn't we? What we shouldn't um, shouldn't forget though is your strike rate is about 118. So some of these people would say that you know you're a a stodgy opening batsman in the T20 game, you could obviously increase the increase the tempo. Yeah, I had some good years opening the batting early, earlier on in, in my career. We um, so I sort of went full circle. Really. I sort of got in the team as a um, young young gun who could sort of field and, and bowl a few overs, back down the order when required. And um, as my career progressed, I sort of got got the opportunities to bat higher up in the middle order. And then Vikram moved on from Worcester, sort of opened up a slot at the top of the order, which I. Had three really good years at the top, and I think probably my strike rate opening the bat is probably about one thirty. I think something like that, and 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 scored, scored scored relatively heavily in in that period, and then with with the emergence of some 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 really good strikers in the board at the club and different overseas players we had over time, I sort of slotted back down into the middle order and worked my way back down the order, if you like. <laughs> By the time we got to sort of two thousand and uh, two thousand eighteen, I was back to that back to where I started. Really, probably not such a gun fielder at that time in my career, but. Yeah, bowled a bit, batted a bit down the order and just tried to contribute whichever way I could really from, from where I was. Yeah, looking at the scorecard in the final, the scorecard says you're number nine and you're the sort of medium pacer. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think yeah, I think the following year we got to the final, got, um, it was spinning and, and Harmer was bowling for Essex. They sent me out to blunt him probably about, I don't know, I must have batted at five or six, I think, in the final in, in the second year, but yeah, two two great days, and even 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 the final we lost off the last ball. That was an incredible day. We beat Knots off the final ball, I think, in the on the semi final, and um, and looked like winning the final for a long period. And Ravi Para played a played a brilliant innings, and 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 Simon Harmer was there at the end. It was he was sort of the Ben Cox of of, of twenty nineteen, if you like. He had a brilliant day in in both games, and um, unfortunately got Essex over the line off the last ball. But two brilliant games to be a, to be a part of. Very close close encounters and in a lot of ways looking back it was probably a, a better finals day than we want, the, the one we won although the celebrations obviously were were very different the year before. Previous to that in 2017 in February you were appointed the PCA chairman was it difficult combining both the roles as a player and and the chairman? Um, yeah at times I think I think in I mean I've always been quite good good at sort of I don't know compartmentalizing things I suppose is, is that the right word um so always even when I was captain you sort of alluded to it previously like when it was my time to go out and bat that was that was Daryl Mitchell the batter and that was once that kit went on that was that was my one and only focus no matter what was going on in terms of captaincy or PCA chair role or whatever so I was, I've I was always been quite good at that at that really so um that was okay but I think from being a PCA chair, the sort of era I was chairman, it was probably the, from a time management point of view, it was probably the worst time ever to be PCA chairman in terms of everything going on with the advent of the the hundred. Um, there was a new county partnership agreement that was to be negotiated with um, the new broadcast deal coming in. And then obviously we had at the back end, we had COVID as well. Um, so there was a hell of a lot going on. It sort of coincided with um, a couple of our CEOs at the time went off with with some health issues and and so there was lack of um leadership at the top of the executive anyway for for, for a couple of different periods so i was heavily involved on the day-to-day running which is like i say it's probably the worst time ever from a time management point of view but from a 
from an experience point of view, it's probably the, the best thing that could have ever happened in terms of I learned so much and was very much at the at the forefront and very much hands-on from a compared to, well, more hands-on than, than a chairman probably should be in, in some ways, just by, by the sort of hand I was dealt, which again probably sort of led on to to my future career really and the experiences I got there actually opened up the opportunity to to work at the PCA full time. So what direct sort of things did you do when you're the PCA chairman? check as opposed to what you're doing now in your new role from a from a sort of day-to-day perspective as chair you're sort of in the background sort of having a look at things and just keep being kept informed of things really or should be but obviously um with so much big things going on I was very much involved in the negotiations around the the county partnership agreement which involved things like salary collars salary caps minimum wages um there's a new standard contract that was being put together as well so a lot of sort of elements that went into the, into that document I, I was heavily involved with sort of negotiating with county chief executives and uh, and the ecb um the hundred i sat on all the sort of working parties to to how that sort of competition was built i suppose put a lot put a lot to the sort of a lot of the focus groups together with players where they had sort of sort of player feedback sessions and discussions around the format and and, and rules and regulations that kind of thing um, and then obviously when COVID came along, we sort of lost our CEO at that point as well. Tony Irish, who went, went, unfortunately had to return back to South Africa. Um, so a lot of stuff around sort of the pay cuts and, and everything that went on through the game and sort of navigating both the game through the sort of COVID pandemic, but also the, the association itself from a sort of uh, a finance point of view. And obviously we lost all our sort of commercial arm effectively for for a 12 month period or our events and hospitality and things we do. So it was, it was very much navigating the, um, the, the organization through, for a pretty sticky period along with the, with the other executive. So what extra help then were the PCA able to give players during the pandemic? Cause that must've been a very stressful time for, for everyone. Yeah, I think, I think the, 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 the priority really, or certainly the number one priority was trying to a maintain jobs in terms of, player 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 jobs and that's a lot of the what the pay cuts we took I think it was 20% um for the majority of that sort of season um pay cuts across most of the counties or the opportunity for counties to cut at, at, at that level agreed to be furloughed that kind of thing um which obviously kept tried to keep as much money in the game to to keep the counties going in there sort of men, maintain members jobs yeah, so uh, as part of the new standard contract, if you if you're released, um, you've got uh, there's three three months salary you get paid at the end of your contract, so you get paid till December effectively. As before, it was just it was just one month um, to the end of October, so that that was an important uh, important change. Gave comfort to those in their last year of salary, also those in their last year of salary. If they were released, they didn't get any um, they got all the money paid back from from any pay cuts they might might have taken through that period as well. Um, so that was probably the most the most important part of of what we were trying to achieve. Really, was trying to uh, as as a as an association trying to protect our sort of most most vulnerable members. And, and I think we did it well in that, on average, forty five players um, uh, released or retire from the game every year. Um, and I think in the COVID pandemic year, we only lost forty two. So it was actually below average in terms of number number of players lost lost to the game and, and, and finishing up. So I think that was, um, and last year, I think it was down again. I think it was only down to about 40 last year as well. So over the two year period, I think we did, did a pretty good job in that and trying to, trying to maintain, maintain as many players as we possibly could. 
and mentally, was there a like a PCA helpline for players? When... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's always been in place as the, the confidential helpline where you get some help. And we did see, obviously, as you'd expect, I guess, sort of a, a huge rise in, or a spike in the in the sort of mental health provisions and support that we give to all members. Um, numbers were certainly certainly up um, over the last couple of years, and um, hopefully, we'll see a, a little bit of a flattening out and, and less less people needing them. Um, needing that sort of mental health support as as we go on but um uh, yeah again that sort of put a bit of extra strain on some of the resources we were fortunate obviously the charity has been well well supported previously and we've got um uh, we had some some reserves which we had to tap into over the last couple of years because all our fundraising activities took a significant hit um but hopefully now as sort of everything sort of seems to be opening back up we get a full commercial program away this year and do some more fundraising for the for the trust, we can sort of replace those reserves as we go along. Well, thanks for sharing that with me. Um, you decided to retire at the end of 2021, age 37. Was it the right time to stop? Yeah, I, I don't think you ever... I, I, yeah, I think so, certainly. I mean, obviously, we're here now in, in April. I've, I've had no interest in picking up a bat at this point in time. I was sort of watching, as we go around the counties, watching the guys out in the in the middle with beanie hats on in the freezing cold, doing slip practice and things like that. I didn't, certainly didn't um, didn't didn't want to be want to swap places, and that's for sure. So yeah, I think it was the right it was the right call. It's enabled us to do a few a few different things with the family and things as well, and um, played football again this winter, which I've really really enjoyed. So I had after a sort of fifteen year sabbatical from from that. So um, yeah, no, it was the right time for me. I think um, I didn't enjoy my cricket as much last year as I have have previously, certainly, and probably my my batting results probably were part, partly to blame for that, certainly. But um, yeah, I had, a, I had a great crack at it and enjoyed my career, but it definitely felt like it was the the right time to to go and try something else. And obviously, I had a, a great opportunity at the the, the PCA, which um, I was more than happy to take up. Well, you do yourself an injustice. Thirteen thousand nine hundred twenty runs. 3900s, 33 first class wickets. And uh, in your last match, you went out on a high. Uh, um, you won by 10 wickets. Yeah, yeah, we won by 10 wickets. I was out there at the end as well, which was which was a nice way to finish. Yeah, some night. It was a good, it was a nice week, actually. I, once I made the decision to retire, I found that there was three, three games, well, it's four games in September, but the first three, I didn't like, it was, it was weird. I didn't really enjoy it. But the last one, unfortunately, was at, at New Road, which was good. Um, there was a few, quite a few people turned out to sort of wave me off, sort of thing. So uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the week. The Leicester lads were, were great. Yeah, they gave me a god, god of honour out to the middle in the on the first in, in the first innings, and um, yeah, it was just a, it was an enjoyable week. Really, I, I um, obviously capped off really by by winning um, winning by ten wickets, and obviously I was out there at the end as well. So yeah, some special memories to to sort of finish off. Just must let listeners know that you won by 10 wickets um, and everyone's now thinking you scored 70, 80, but it was nine not out, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a good nine though. It was, I think it might have been a run of ball or something. <laughs> we'll have to check the strike rate on that game. Mm. Uh, the other thing I was pleased to hear that, um, that you also like horse racing you, and you sometimes get to Cheltenham. Yeah, obviously not far away here. Um, from Actually from Worcestershire Parkway Station, it's only sort of, five minutes from my house so that's only, it's only a 20 minute train into Cheltenham so uh, yeah I guess one of the one of the big positives about retiring from cricket that week of the year the festival week can be uh, 
be reserved for uh, for horse racing. Don't have to worry about pre-season games or pre-season fitness tests or pre-season tours or anything like that anymore. So uh, managed to get to Cheltenham a couple of days this year, which was which was great. And obviously, like the the October, I think it's November and December meetings as well, which I, which I try and get to. So yeah, Cheltenham's a very special place, and I, I wouldn't say I'm an, ad, an avid horse racing fan. I m- might have a look uh, on the occasional Saturday, but Cheltenham week certainly something that I really enjoy. Oh, that's good to hear. Uh, and what does the future hold for, for Daryl Mitchell? Um, we'll just continue what I do at the PCA in the near future, certainly. So, uh, yeah, obviously I'm very lucky to get a, get an opportunity to stay in the game. It's great. Obviously, it's a game I'm very passionate about and, and, and what I've loved. So uh, to stay in the game from a work perspective is great. Um, I'm still going to play a little bit of cricket, playing for Ombersley in, in the Birmingham League. Uh, a couple of MCC games as well, but hopefully try and get that golf handicap down as well when with with a bit more spare time now as well so hopefully get out on the golf course and uh, uh and get the, get the handicap down so what's the handicap at the moment 7.7 so i'd like i'd like to get below 6 if i can that's my target for this summer that's the um like you say you sort of give up on professional sport there's always uh, always ambitions and always that competitive nature that wants you to drive on to be better in whatever you do and so yeah golf golf's the target for this summer and uh and then try and get fit again, try and play another year of football. I'm not sure how long the legs have got in me playing local football, but I'll give it another go next year. Certainly, I've enjoyed this one. Best of luck then for the, the football and the golf and in your role at the PCA. And thank you very much for joining me on the Paddock and the Pavilion. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Pad and Pad. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Sports Social Podcast Network.